Welcome to the JACCP podcast. My name is Lynn Chrisman. I'm the Barron Centennial Professor Emeritus in the College of Pharmacy and Professor of Psychiatry at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. John Rush, Professor Emeritus at Duke National University of Singapore. Uh, he and I served uh, together as the themed issue editors on clinical pharmacy practice and mental health for the February 2024 issue of the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. I was extremely excited when uh, the editor, uh, Dr. Jerry Bauman, contacted me and asked me if I'd be uh, interested in being the themed editor for, uh, for this issue. And I was really excited when doc Dr. Rush agreed to, to, to join me. Uh, we sent out a call for papers last, uh, last January, and we were really, really very, very pleased at the response we got and their articles that are on uh, innovative psychiatric pharmacy services, uh, advances in psychiatric pharmacy education and training, and advocacy for the clinical pharmacy profession. February 2024 issue of JACCP features five review articles and seven clinical pharmacy research reports. Uh, we're very excited to highlight today one of the submissions titled Development of the Core Outcome Set for Psychiatric Pharmacists, with the lead author being Dr. Christina Reinstaller. And she was joined by a team of six additional authors. Thank you, Dr. Ryan Statler, for representing your group and joining us on today's podcast. Can you give our listeners some background on why there's a need for a core outcome set for, for psychiatric pharmacists? Yeah, absolutely. So the American Association of Psychiatric Pharmacists, AAPP, has this vision for strategic goals long term. And two of the goals that we're trying to address are to have consistent quality patient care, and the other is to have consistent quality research. And so both of these goals promote the role of the psychiatric pharmacist on a macro and micro levels. So a little bit more background, we started with a systematic literature review. One of our groups in AAPP did this review, and thank you so much to them for their work. What we found in this review, they were looking at outcomes that captured psych the role of psychiatric pharmacy. And what we found, what they found and what we subsequently reviewed was that there was really inconsistency in what was collected and also what was reported and the way that it was reported. So the goal of the core outcome set is to provide guidance, not only obviously to improve patient care, but also to make aggregation easier across health systems and practice settings. And there's really been a movement in a lot of different medical specialties to move towards measurement-based care and to collect quality outcomes, um, including the three white papers that the JACCP published in 2021, which outline quality outcomes in broad practice settings for pharmacists. So we really wanted to build on this work and with a focus on um, psychiatric pharmacy practice. So lots of different kinds of benefits, clinical benefits, um, detecting residual symptoms, developing individualized treatment plans for patients, and then on a broader scope, helps us to evaluate effectiveness of QI initiatives, can demonstrate effective treatments to payers, hopefully uh, garner support for additional pharmacy staff, and possibly improve reimbursement for mental health services, and ultimately support additional funding for mental health services. So there's small patient outcomes, and then on a larger scale, we're hoping that being able to combine data from several institutions will 
support some of these larger goals. That's a that's a, a tall order, and I, I I guess the obvious question is, <laughs> uh, you're trying to placate a lot of stakeholders simultaneously. That could give you a lot mm-hmm. of outcomes. Uh, how did you sort the uh, possible? How many did you did you wind up with? And uh, you know that those are tough calls. And just walk us through kind of how you curated what would be uh, an extraordinary list, and uh, and a yes, little bit absolutely. of the thinking went went behind that. Yeah, so we started out, again, with that systematic literature review. We started there and made a list of the outcomes that were captured there. And then, and that was with a lot of help from the systematic literature review committee. So I don't, I want to make sure that they get their recognition there. But we started there and made a list of outcomes. And then we looked at other regulatory documents, other white papers, and collected additional outcomes and measures from those sources. We had upwards of 500 at that point. And then I sat there and went through all of those and kind of grouped them to, in things that were similar, right? Um, Concepts that were similar. And so we ended up with a list um, of about 46 different possibilities. And those we sent out to the AAPP membership along with a survey in which membership was encouraged to respond for each outcome on five different factors. And these are factors that were outlined um, as quality indicators for outcomes. And it's things like, I mean, obviously we formatted them a little bit to reflect the psychiatric pharmacist population. So one of them was, is this attributable to pharmacy? Is this scientifically sound? those sorts of things. And then we took that information and um, combined that to give each of the outcomes a score based on each of the five quality factors. That is what eventually, that information was also given to our summit participants. So we hosted a summit that ended up being almost 11 hours spread over a couple sessions. And that, that, um, Lynn Paul and I know we've done some summits before. I think <laughs> right. ours went on for several days. I can't remember when it started or ended yet. They're not easy. So keep going. Keep there, going. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there was a lot of, a lot of really, really good discussion. And actually we originally only had three sessions planned, but we ended up doing four because the conversation just was ongoing, which was great. So we had summit participants from all different, that worked in all different facets of pharmacy, outpatient, inpatient transitions of care, academia, and they, we went through each of those outcomes. They were given the information from the the aggregate survey, the aggregate information from the survey and debate ensued. And we ended up with 21 outcomes and 84 measures for those outcomes. Yeah. Interesting and hard work. If you look outside of mental health and look at other areas of, of healthcare, uh, for example, if you look at blood pressure and hypertension, everybody on the healthcare team knows exactly what that means. And you, you can even teach patients what it means. So, you know, how do, with, with that sort of an analogy, how do you envision these being used by psychiatric pharmacists? Yeah, great question. I think that a large part of this is going to be for these patients, getting them used to potentially answering more in-depth questions like the PHQ-9 when they come in for visits and being able to document that with routine frequency 
in uh, the electronic health record. There's evidence that shows only about 17% of psychiatrists use measurement-based care and only about 11% of psychologists with any kind of routine. And so it is a shift in practice a little bit to get teams and patients used to understanding these things that we're looking at and, and gaining familiarity. Like when I go to my primary care physician now, I know that they're asking me questions from the PHQ-9 because I'm familiar with the PHQ-9. And I think that that's great that they're kind of integrating those things into practice. And as patients gain more familiarity, it'll, it'll, I think it'll just become part of routine, the same as screening blood pressure. You know, you go to the physician's office or you go to the, visit the pharmacist, you get your blood pressure checked, you may get your A1C checked, you get your PHQ-9 or, you know, whatever is relevant, or you do your AIMS assessment. So that's, that's kind of what I envision. I, I envision, uh, however, the individual clinical pharmacist has decided to apply our core outcome set to their practice, that the patients will become familiar as it becomes routine. So do you envision validating the core outcome set? And the outcome measurement instruments? Sure. So I looked very briefly at some of the different approaches to validating core outcome set. It isn't something that we have discussed as a group at this point, because one of the things we are now shifting our focus slightly to finalize and publish a reporting guideline, which is the goal there is to standardize what pharmacists, once they're collecting these outcomes, how they report the information if they're publishing research so that those things can be replicated in other practice settings. So I'm not saying we're not going to do it, but as of right now, we don't have a formalized plan for it. Do you you have any plans to try to, let's say, restrict or expand the core set? In other words, how, how would it evolve and what evidence would you need to make it evolve? Yeah, so we definitely recognize that there is a need to reassess consistently. One of the areas that we identify that we want to include. So we centered the core outcome set around the quadruple health aim, healthcare aims. Better care, reduce costs, right. um, improve patient experience, etc. Sure. Well, now there's a push to have a fifth one added to that, which is health equity. So obviously we want to include health equity going forward. There was also a number of our outcomes that didn't have a validated measure that any of the summit participants or anybody on our task force could was familiar with or could locate. Um, and these are especially in the provider well-being section because a lot of the literature that is published surrounding provider well-being, the researchers developed an individual tool or survey specific to their research. So we were not able to locate any kind of like validated national or international scales as far as that went. So continuing to research that, um, find some measures for those outcomes that currently don't have any or encourage development of those. That's another area that would lead to the core outcomes being updated. Additionally, something that we talked about a lot is how do we attribute these to pharmacy? 
because pharmacy functions a lot of times as part of an interdisciplinary team. Right. So when we're looking at things like improved disease state progression, how do we say, well, the pharmacist is responsible for this improvement in PHQ-9? And in some practice settings, it may be a little bit easier than other ones. So really being able to, as part of the core outcome set, explain a little bit more um, how to delineate the pharmacist's role. And maybe some of these outcomes are not appropriate um, for to put have as a core outcome set for pharmacists specifically, because you can't really attribute it to the, the individual in uh, an individual pharmacy practice. Yeah, that's. I think that's a, a. It's a big challenge if you're on the psychiatric end and you're maybe being the prescriber, not necessarily the pharmacist or the pharmacist prescriber has the same issue. Then who on whose watch mm-hmm. is this? And it's kind of like asking in a in a football play. Was it, was it the tackle, the blocker, the passer, the middle linebacker? Who, who, who screwed up or who did the right thing? And the answer is, yes, we all did. I, I, I guess the thing I, I worry about is, um, and maybe you have some thoughts on it, is we have a lot of professions that are trying to do the right thing and be quite precise about what they're doing and do a better job. Cause, and I think we can all yes. tighten our um, operating procedures up well. The fear I have is that we now put in another measure and then somebody to measure the measure, and then you have somebody to analyze the measure, and then, oh my God, we need another measure. And a friend of mine just wrote a, a brief article on a measurement mania, and I'm, I'm a little worried that um, it's not uh, provider-centric, it's not uh, clinician-centric, it's not patient-centric, it's bureaucratically-centric. And that is, we're going to go from already uh, trouble with burnout and fatigue and lack of autonomy and agency by providers, which leads to, you know, provider illnesses and, and difficulties to, to a worse state. So I don't know if you have any comments on that, but I, I that's every time I, I hear, you know, we need another measure. Now we need diversity and now we need uh, who, who's, who's responsible for which, which symptom on the PHQ went down this week. I'm going, wait a minute, I'm right. starting to feel a little queasy. So in, any comments? I'm sure you all have uh, discussed this. It'd be interesting. I'm not saying there's an answer, but I think hearing your uh, conversation in your head and, and amongst you would be really informative to the audience. Yes, no, that is a huge concern because we already, to your point, have provider burnout across the board. Nurses are burned out, pharmacists are burned out, physicians are burned out, AAP advanced practice practitioners are burned, you know, everybody, everybody is burned out. And a lot of it has to do with the charting, right. And having to document every single thing because we have to continually justify ourselves to payers, to employers. And it it, it does kind of get to be this circle, right? Well, we want to justify so we can get more people, but in order to justify, we have to do all this more work to get more people because we have to document all these things that we're doing that are so great. And, and I agree, it, it becomes very challenging. And the, with the way that reimbursement works currently, it adds challenges because it makes people territorial over who's doing what. Yes. Um, because we all need to get paid, right, to be able to do these things. Good old fee um, for service. Yeah. So it's... It, it is a challenge. And I think um, collaboration is really important. Um, I did have the, the benefit of speaking to, I went to the um, 
American Psychiatric Association's Mental Health Services Conference and presented there. And I um, was able to touch base with their director of quality. And um, we're hoping that we'll be able to partner some more on some of these initiatives just so that we're kind of all on the same page and working together and trying to figure out exactly the issue you're talking about. And there isn't an easy, there isn't an easy answer in my opinion. So I I agree with all of your comments. Yeah. It kind of leads us into the other sort of practical question, which is itemized scales versus global scales, patient rated versus Mm -hmm. clinician rated. Um, I, I recall very well a wonderful article in the late seventies on the visual analog scale that was uh, related to the Hamilton rating scale. One takes a lot mm-hmm. of time and there's too many versions of the Hamilton to even figure out which one you're talking about. The correlations was good enough for government and clinical work with about 0.75 to 0.8. And, and recently we, we did another paper on this in a whole nother data set and found the same sort of thing. I, I wonder if we, um, as you're thinking about how did you pick the measures, and I notice sometimes you have a global, sometimes clinical, sometimes itemized. Any thoughts on uh, less is more, so to speak, or how did you come up with, uh, do we need really need a mattress when I can do a CGII? That kind of stuff. Right. And, and I will tell you that throughout the whole summit, there was very spirited discussion about this very <laughs> issue, about how the measures should be captured, um, or not, I shouldn't say how the measures should be captured, how the outcomes should be captured by appropriate measures. Yes. And um, everyone has, of course, their own opinion, their own preferences for their practice. And some pharmacists already have certain tools integrated into their practice. And there's there's an overwhelming number of potential tools as well. Um, When you look at screening tool, or not, I shouldn't say screening tools, rating scales for depression, there's about 280 of them that are available. And how do we decide which one we're going to use? And that's really why when you look at um, the measures for the core outcomes, in particular, the the improved progress towards treatment goals. We're very generic about what we're saying. We have like a certain set of globally applicable measures that are things like the CGI. And then for the specific disease states, we say use a validated disease specific rating scale because we didn't want to prescribe a particular one. That can be a challenge because how do we aggregate that then? And the feeling of the summit participants was, is even if like you are doing the Madras and I'm doing the PHQ-9 and you know, that what we could look at as to aggregate the information is well, how many patients achieved remission? How many patients achieved, um, who responded to treatment? Looking at that and obviously I'm using depression heavily as an example because I think that that's something that um, does have the most tools available at this point, to my knowledge, Um, when you talk about like major psychiatric disease states. So So I'm leaning heavily on that as my example. But there's research that shows that when you look at clinician rated versus patient rated um, scales for depression, there's really 
their equivalent in identifying responders and remitters. So if we're looking at like kind of a patient-centered approach, patients are the best expert on themselves. So probably we leaned more towards wanting to use patient-rated scales as opposed to clinician-rated scales, because there's also a degree of training that goes for clinician-rating scales and how do we ensure that everybody is trained appropriately, because that seems like something that should not be regulated by AAPP, right? The, you know, are you trained appropriately to do this clinician-rated scale? So, like I said, we went back and forth, and that's what, that's how ultimately we ended up not being very general. One challenge is if you have a lot of recommended scales and you have clinicians in practice using 280 different scales for depression, it makes communicating with one another very challenging. Mm -hmm. And there's about five scales that I really know well for depression. Yeah, and this is um, something that Dr. Faber and colleagues have been working on recently and have published. So they're part of the, um, they're working on the common measures in mental health science. And that's really focused at using standardizing how we measure things for research. But I think that that's applicable to clinical practice, right? Their work is ongoing. They have identified, um, I think the list was published in 2020, that there was a few tools that they recommend as being the standard for research. And they basically say, well, you can collect what else, whatever else you want, but you should report these things. And that goes back to that point of being able to speak the same language, being able to aggregate this information. So more to yeah. come, I guess, is the answer. <laughs> and I guess, you know, it's sort of like in practice, the PHQ-2 is a good example because mm -hmm. you know, Medicare reimburses physicians for administering the PHQ-2 as part of the uh, annual wellness check. My nurse asked me as, as, as she's weighing me about those, those two PHQ questions. That feels like not the time to be doing PHQ <laughs> yes, questions. Depends on the weight. Yeah, I agree with that one. Right. <laughs> so I, I'm really reassured that you, that you like the patient as the determinant of outcome, because I think that we have underplayed the patient's role in virtually everything. And I think because it's their disease to manage and it's our job to help them do it, uh, they have to be put in the driver's seat. That's not comfortable for some patients. And it's a little bit of a paradigm shift for a number of practitioners. I'd say more surgeons than mental health professionals, but still it's a challenge because in a sense we feel responsible, but it's their problem and we're there to be of mm -hmm. assistance. So I think, and, and ultimately, you know, getting the patient, as you mentioned, to be part of the team to manage the problem and to identify problems when they have problems. So they don't keep a secret. They tell us and we can we can help them quickly. I think that's a these are really tremendous steps forward. It's, it's as they say with the Ten Commandments, implementation is everything. Uh, it can be challenging. Yes. And my experience has been it's much easier to get pr primary care clinicians to use the scales than it is psychiatrists. I am. I'm currently involved in training and coaching pediatricians to treat mental mental disorders in children, and they've totally embraced the yep. use of, of rating scales. And we almost exclusively use, you know, parent and self-assessment. Yeah, I, I don't know why that happens. Because when I met, went to med school, we, we liked measurement. Then I went into psychiatry and said, and people said, why do I need that for? So it's I, I would say it's psychiatric narcissism on steroids. It's amazing, <laughs> you know. And, and literally, I, these are from my colleagues and friends. So 
Why do and, and this mm-hmm. is a quote? Why would I need a PHQ? I know how depressed the person is. I've been in practice for twenty years, and we, that's that's terrific. We actually remember John and some of the research that did where we were actually providing the psychiatrists with the writing scales. Some of them would refuse to look at them. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Lynn, any other questions? Are, are there plans for periodic review and updates? So we haven't really had, we don't have a formalized plan yet, but we definitely recognize the need for that. And it, it will be an ongoing process. We, When we created the document, we look at it as a dynamic document that is going to um, evolve over time, especially as people start integrating these outcomes and measures and thinking about things that way in their practice and fig- and that'll help us refine what's actually clinically relevant, if that makes sense. To your points from earlier, a lot of people don't think this way. A lot of people don't think about capturing this information and how do we capture this information? How do we build it into our electronic health records? How do we easily run reports so we can say, hey, we screened 532 patients for metabolic side effects of antipsychotics, and here's what we did. Um, so it, it is a challenge because it's a heavy lift, and we are already strained across the board. We, you know, we talked about that earlier. We're, our healthcare system is stressed. And again, this is asking for more, but how do we do the little bit more and so that it's easy to get this information? There was one of our summit participants who commented that their institution still is on paper charts. Mm-hmm. So when we have paper charts, how do we collect this information? So there's there's a lot of challenges. Well, but, thanks very much, Dr. Ryan Statler, for chatting with us today. And I, and I think that, that your article is just a, an excellent lead article for the themed issue of the journal. Thank you. I appreciate your questions and your time.